Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for MPB comes from Trustmark, one of the South's largest lenders. Buying a home these days can be tricky. Getting pre-qualified online with Trustmark helps buyers to move fast. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. More at trustmark.com slash mortgage. Good morning. It's 830 on Wednesday, December 13th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... Hines County voters demanding answers over ballot shortages during November's general election. The nurses at the University Medical Center in New Orleans voted to unionize. The Gulf States newsroom has more on how that vote came to be. Plus, a sunken gunboat from the Civil War was able to preserve history. Hear how that was done. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hines County voters, civil rights organizations, and former candidates are calling on the Election Commission to explain ballot shortages in last month's general election. The County Board of Elections hosted a public comment period yesterday. The room quickly filled with voters demanding answers. Among those there, Allison Lauderdale of Raymond. She lost in her election bid this year to become the District 4 supervisor for the county. She is now more concerned with the reports of voting problems on Election Day. At one of my precincts, the machines were never plugged in, so therefore at 8.30, they shut off. They went hundreds of ballots because the machines were shut down because people did not plug them in. Now, my problem, and I want to say this loud and clear, and so many have said it, if I did what y'all did as a normal person, I would have been fired. Would have been fired from the job. But because y'all are elected officials, I think that you have this bubble of protection, and I don't understand that. I have had a a couple, they were 80 years old, they've never in their day of life since they were able to vote, missed a vote, until November 7th because they were too tired of waiting in line. And every time, oh, they've got ballots, they've got ballots. 40 ballots? That goes like that. Am I angry? You better believe I'm angry. I don't care that I lost. It's how we lost. Twelve voting rights organizations are calling on the board to meet with community members and stakeholders. Among them is the Poor People's Campaign, a national nonprofit for racial and economic justice. Our Mike McEwen speaks with organizer Danielle Holmes about her takeaways from yesterday's meeting. 
There were a lot of um, hiccups on Election Day here in Hines County for the general election. And um, not only that, there was a lack of integrity during the primary election process. And so after numerous attempts to reach out to the election commissioner um, to have a meeting to discuss some of the ongoing issues that we witnessed on Election Day that happened, we were directed to come to the public comments to their meeting on today and say whatever needed to be said within the public comment section, which was two minutes. And uh, we just believe that the election would happen um, was a form of voter suppression. And as the Poor People's Campaign, this is what we have fought. But this is our work, right? And we know that voter suppression has been extremely real in the South. It's, 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 it's an uprising. Um, policies are being passed to constantly suppress the vote. Um, we have a harvesting ba- ballot bill that's coming into effect in January. Right. And so we need to get all of this right this election. And there was an opportunity to get it right. They had every opportunity. But we found that instead of our election commissioners actually doing the work of the people, they were bickering and board of supervisors meetings, you know, targeting individuals to be arrested and investigations. And rightfully so, if there was any mishap or, you know, theft or whatever there. But we needed them to pay more attention to our electoral process, which they governed during this past election. And they failed the residents, many voters who had never voted before or weren't enthused to vote but did come out to vote this election. They wanted answers. They wanted answers, and they were not able to get those answers. And so we, it's our duty to hold every elected official, whether you're Republican or Democrat or independent, we're nonpartisan, accountable. We just want a fair democracy and a fair electoral process without any forms of ballot shortages, machines going out. These issues happen every election cycle. It's the same issues and the same precincts, at the, and, and it has to stop. Okay, do you just talk me through the exchange that you had, uh, I think it's Ms. Flowers, um, just about requesting a meeting with her as part of your coalition relating to this issue? And... Yeah, so I think it's probably been almost three weeks now that we've sent a letter, the coalition sent a letter to the um, Hines County Election Commissioners requesting a meeting. So right after the election? Right after the election. And their reply was that they would not be available because of the runoff election. And so they invited us to come and have comments at the public comments section. And if that didn't work, they asked us to reply back. And we told them that that process did not work, but we would still show up and bring community along with us. However, we have not yet to hear back from them on scheduling a meeting and so we had to forcefully demand a meeting here today with them and it was important that I called out because if you want to have a meeting with one individual right and I'm going to go as far as to say there was a bit of classism and racism there by yes a black woman who chose to single out and and have talk to her white constituent right when you have a base of brown and black people who have been asking for a meeting with you and yet we're still put on the back burner. So that was very problematic, and it needed to be called out. Something, I, I'm a Jackson resident. I vote in Hines County. Something that struck me about this issue is, you know, Mississippi in many ways was the focal point of the civil rights That's movement. That's right. And, and trying to reach black suffrage. And now 60, maybe 70 years after that was codified into federal law. You know, there are seemingly systemic issues that are getting in the way 
of black people being able to vote here, just as the Poor People's Campaign and the work y'all do. That's right. You know, how, how do y'all feel about that? We don't shy away from, and this is why, we are we're very clear to say that this is not a black or white or brown issue. This is a right versus wrong issue. This is a moral issue. And voter suppression happens to black, to white, to brown, to the disabled, you know, to our most vulnerable communities, populations. And so to see that that happened here, and we have a election commissioner that's totally black, all black election commissioners. So this isn't something that we said, oh, this was racism, or this is something that Trump supporters did. No, these are all black elected officials who mishandled a predominantly black county election. And it's very, totally unacceptable and very problematic. Daniel Holmes is an organizer with the Poor People's Campaign, speaking about the Hines County Election Commission and problems at the polls. Coming up, nurses at the University Medical Center in New Orleans vote to unionize. The Gulf States Newsroom has more on how that vote came to be. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. What are your holiday traditions? Driving to see relatives? Baking treats? Curling up on the couch near the fireplace? MPB Think Radio can be a part of each of these holiday events. Listen on your car radio or your smart speaker along with on-demand favorites like Deep South Dining and AutoCorrect inside the MPB Public Media app. Start a new tradition today, listening to MPB Think Radio while you celebrate the holidays. MPB Think Radio, whatever your taste, news, music, storytelling, or how-to shows, whatever your city, Gulfport, Hernando, Meridian, Greenville, however you want, radio, smart speaker, smartphone app, MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Hundreds of nurses at University Medical Center in New Orleans voted to unionize last week. National Nurses United says it's one of Louisiana's largest union elections in 30 years and the first private hospital in the state to unionize. Lucy Mendez is a registered nurse at UMC New Orleans in the emergency department. She spoke with the Gulf States Newsroom's Stephen Basaha about why she voted for and campaigned to support joining the union. So what motivated you to vote in favor of unionizing? So what voted, motivated me to vote in favor of unionizing is patient care. So I wanted to make sure that my patients were getting well taken care of. And um, one of those things that provides us help with caring for patients is having safe uh, ratios. So um, about getting, staffing ratios? Staffing ratios so that we can take care of our patients. Well, help me understand what you're seeing in the hospital as far as a, a lack of proper staffing. So what we're seeing, it directly affects patient wait times and patient outcomes. So longer wait times in the emergency department for patients to be able to see a doctor, longer wait times for patients to go into rooms and be kind of a more comfortable environment for them being kind of in the emergency room 
in stretchers is not the most comfortable thing for uh, extended long periods of time. It, it wasn't made for that. So we are not able provide, to provide the care that we would like for our patients. Was there a specific moment or incident that you could think of that made you think, okay, we do really need a union here? There's not a specific moment. Um, it's kind of one of those things where you talk about and you have nurses that are here that travel to California and other states that do have unions. And they kind of tell us the kind of ratios that they have. And they speak to us about, you know, having somebody cover your lunch and little things like that. You get all that information and you're like, maybe one day and we have the one day, you know. At the same time, unions have not historically been popular in the South, or at least a lot less popular here. How did that affect this campaign? I would say a lot of people were very naive to the things that what unions can help us with and um, a little hesitant on allowing someone to come in and help us out. And we also were told that it's a third party that's going to come in and that they're going to kind of take over just getting knowledge that, no, it's not anybody else. It's us. We are the Told ones. by working. the medical center? Yes. And, and so what, what specifically were they saying? They would tell us that a third party would come in um, and they're the ones going to be making the negotiation. But we are the union. So we compromise the union. We make up the union. University Medical Center makes up the union. How did you end up overcoming a lot of that anti-union messaging? A lot of talking. It was a lot of one-on-one -on -one talking to our own staff, um, other people, just being able to be available to others. Um, I think it's a big thing is being open to talking to someone, answering any questions, and whatever you don't know, you find out. The other thing we've seen over the past several years with uh, companies like Amazon, Starbucks, is that a union victory does not guarantee a quick first contract. We've seen contract fights drag on for years. I know you're celebrating that right now, but looking forward, how are you expecting negotiations to go? We're looking forward um, to work. We ate, we won by a very big mi majority. We ate by we won by eighty two percent. So we um, we are talking to. Even the people that are saying said no, like what is it that um, is important to you to make sure that we can include all of those things um, in our contract and make a very strong first contract? The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Next, how a sunken gunboat from the Civil War preserves history. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. What are your holiday traditions? Driving to see relatives? Baking treats? Curling up on the couch near the fireplace? MPB Think Radio can be a part of each of these holiday events. Listen on your car radio or your smart speaker, along with on-demand favorites like Deep South Dining and AutoCorrect inside the MPB Public Media app. Start a new tradition today, listening to MPB Think Radio while you celebrate the holidays. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Yesterday marked the 160th anniversary of the sinking of the USS Cairo, a Civil War gunboat now on display at the Vicksburg Military Park. The ship stands as the only remaining one classified as a city-class vessel from that time. When the ship was discovered in the Yazoo River, it still contained dozens of artifacts that helped historians understand the living conditions of Union soldiers. Elizabeth Joyner is a retired museum curator for the Vicksburg Military Park. She's speaking today for Histories is Lunch at noon at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson. She tells our Kobe Vance about the ship and what it took to preserve its history. In terms of its service record, I guess it wasn't that impressive. But it's important to us because of all the artifacts that were brought up with it and the manner in which she was sunk um, and the fact that she's the only one, uh, only one in her particular class uh, to have survived. So those are all things that make it very important. And then there was a number of discoveries that were made on board the Carol when she was brought up that told us more about how these men of so long ago lived on board this gunboat. Yeah, so can you give us a brief history of uh, the Carrero and how it was sunk, or I guess how it even got down to Mississippi in the first place? She was built in Mound City, Illinois, but named for Cairo. So she spelled the same way as Cairo, Egypt, but pronounced uh, Cairo. And she served along the, uh, well, on the day that she went down, she was in the Yazoo River, and she was on a mission with a group of other vessels to find and destroy torpedoes that had been placed in the water. Unfortunately, she found two of them um, and uh, was hit. Uh, One blew a large gaping hole into her port side and dislodged her number one port gun. And these torpedoes that I'm talking about are more like today's mines. And they consisted of a a five-gallon glass jar called a demijohn filled with black powder. And anyway, she was hit by, by two of them. And uh, fortunately, none of her crew were were killed. Everyone was able to get off. But she sunk in such a a short amount of time. She went down in 12 minutes. The men weren't able to save many of their personal possessions. And so these items went down with the tarot when she went down. So uh, she was like a Civil War time capsule. Well, I'm certain that was a tragedy for the people on board. what has it meant for uh, historians to be able to see this stuff as it was on the ship? And I, I guess we'll get into this a little bit later, but it's worth noting that much of the ship was actually made of wood. And it's impressive that this ship is even existing at all anymore, considering the conditions it was left in. Right. It was called an ironclad because of its iron covering, but it wasn't totally covered with iron. Beneath the water line, it was wood. It had a wooden hull. Um and uh, um, divers uh, were amazed at the things that they found when they went down on the Cairo. She was uh, everything was frozen in time, just like it had been left back in 1862. And uh, some unique items were found, like the ambrotype, uh, which is a type of photograph, but it was a, a negative type. They were glass, and some of these still retained images. Matter of fact, um, the, the conservators were able to. Um, we produced a photograph from one of them that we see we have in the we had in the museum um, on display, like a mother and child that would have belonged to one of the men on board. 
but just so many different artifacts, um, the hygiene items, toothbrushes, shaving gear, needles and thread, their eating utensils, uh, small arms, all these things are just um, a treasure trove. The shoes, hundreds of leather fragments. I plan to bring this out in the program, but many of the bottles still contain original content. And uh, we know what those contents are due to Margie Barsh, who was the wife of Ed Barsh, one of the people who found the tarot. Um, she wrote countless letters to pharmaceutical companies and sent off samples that were taken from these bottles. And they were able to analyze and, and send a list back of what were in the bottles. So that was a huge help. And just took all these meticulous notes about where things were found on the boat and uh, if they knew who they belonged to. And just uh, a very valuable resource for the staff there at the park. What went into the raising of the, the ship? I imagine it was a lot of work to get that back out of the water and relocate it onto the uh, battlefield in Vicksburg. Yes. Um, it took many years. It was located in 1956, and it took them from 1956, and of course, raising funds and all. This was raised by a private group of citizens um, who called themselves Operation Caro. And... Um, and uh, it took them from 1956 until uh, 1964 to complete the raising. The raise, the final piece of the Caro was brought up exactly 102 years to the date of her sinking on December the 12th, 1964. And once she was brought up, the group that had been working on the raising had run out of funding to go any further with the project. And so eventually... Um, Ownership of the Kara was reverted to the state of Mississippi. She was taken to um, Pascagoula to the shipyard there. She was there for 13 years, and they did some initial uh, restoration. They tried to piece the wood of the vessel back together and did some restoration of the, of the gunboat while she was there. And, but in 1973, the National Park Service gained title, and Kara was again placed on barges and brought back to Vicksburg and brought to the riverfront. She was um, cut into smaller segments and placed on large trucks and then trucked up to her present-day location within Vicksburg National Military Park, situated just below the uh, U.S. Navy Memorial Monument. At the time, uh, the USS Carroll Museum was being constructed, and that was to house the, the smaller items that were brought up at the Carroll. They began preservation of the vessel with um, initial treatment to stabilize the wood. The actual restoration was conducted by the Park Service, a, a, a division of the Park Service known as um, Denver Service Center. And they, they also hired some local experts uh, in the field of uh, welding, and carpentry, and painting, and, um, and they all worked on this monumental task to restore the gunboat. I was actually a seasonal, serving as a seasonal during part of that time. Uh, and so it was exciting for me to get to see uh, the various parts being put back on the vessel. And so what do you think the preservation of this ship means for the larger uh, historical community? Looking, Be able to look at this and understand what uh, the soldiers were going through during this period of the war. Um, well, she's the most complete example 
uh, to my knowledge. And the fact that you can walk through her and you can um, well, restore decks, you can look up inside her pilot house and look out toward over the bow and look through the gun ports and see the original guns and all the, the gun carriages and such. It, it's an amazing discovery. And go inside the adjacent museum and see the items that were brought up with this, this vessel. You know, just kind of feel how they must have lived. It was pretty close confines, and I'm sure it wasn't the most pleasant of environments. But one thing, one of the crew had uh, recorded that at least they knew where they were going to sleep at night. They knew they might usually have three meals a day. So that was one advantage to serving on the gunboat, where ground forces didn't always know where they were going to sleep or if they'd have three meals a day. But she's an amazing treasure trove of artifacts and a Civil War time capsule. Elizabeth Joyner is a retired museum curator for the Vicksburg Military Park. She's speaking today at History is Lunch at noon at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.